Hey, Sustainable Asia listeners, this is Marcy Trent Long. Today, I want to share with you an episode about the Global Plastics Treaty from one of my favorite podcasts called Plastosphere. It's run by Anja Klieger in Berlin. And like Sustainable Asia, Plastosphere podcast really looks at the science behind this plastic waste crisis. I thought listeners would appreciate this episode in particular as it gives a great background to the Global Plastics Treaty beginnings. Anja speaks with a number of scientists and experts from around the world that have followed the plastics issues for decades. And it's all wrapped up in Plastosphere's signature listener experience with incredible sound engineering, intuitive flow of the script, and lovely music. Enjoy. May I take it that the Assembly wishes to adopt this draft resolution? I see no objections. It is so decided. So today was one for the history books. It was truly a big day for the environment. There were high emotions when that gavel came down. What there is now clarity on is that we will have a strong global, international and comprehensive framework on plastic pollution. We produce around 400 million tons of plastic every year and 300 million tons of that goes right into the waste dump and 11 million tons of that into our oceans. We need collective action to develop viable and sustainable substitute for plastics. And it will make a difference. One that shows again the true value of multilateralism. The fact that member states put up their hand and said, we will resolve this, is major. But now is the time to roll up our sleeves because the world is watching. Welcome to Plastosphere, the podcast on plastics, people, and the planet. My name is Anja Krieger. What you just heard is from a United Nations video celebrating a decision that was made in Nairobi, Kenya on March 2nd, 2022. That day, countries from around the world agreed to establish a global treaty to end plastic pollution. The discussions around the treaty are now in full swing, kickstarted with two initial meetings in Senegal and Uruguay last year. Next, the country's representatives are heading to Paris, France. They'll meet for the second session of the INC, the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, which is the forum where the treaty is debated. After that, the plan is to hold three more of these INC meetings. If all goes well, the diplomats could agree on the Plastics Treaty at the final conference in the summer of 2025. So that's the rough timeline, pretty ambitious compared to how slow politics often move. But speed isn't everything. How will the delegates make sure to actually get a treaty that tackles plastic pollution effectively and in a fair way? Who gets a seat at the negotiating table and who doesn't? And which issues will the treaty need to address? In the past months, I've asked scientists and experts to send me their demands. In this episode, you'll get to hear some of their messages. And the first I'd like to share with you is from Richard Thompson, a marine biologist at the University of Plymouth in the UK. I'm delighted to see the arrival of the Plastics Treaty 
it, it gives a broad consensus that actually our current patterns of design, use and disposal of plastics is unsustainable, that we need to change our ways. And that's really pleasing. But my main plea for the Plastics Treaty is that we adopt the same level of evidence and accuracy to guide us on solutions, the same level of evidence that we've relied on when we've been trying to define the environmental problem itself. We need that evidence to make sure that the solutions we adopt actually work and we need it to avoid unintended consequences. Richard is widely known as one of the leading scientists of microplastic research. His team first reported tiny bits of plastics in beach sand around the world and in decades-old plankton samples. In 2004, they published a paper titled Lost at Sea. It introduced microplastics as a topic of concern. If we use properly supported, evidenced interventions, I absolutely believe this is a global environmental challenge that we can fix. But currently I'm concerned that in many cases people are resorting to guesswork around the solutions because we're lacking some of the key evidence to guide us on what works and what doesn't work. Richard leads the International Marine Litter Research Unit. There, he and his colleagues are investigating the impacts of plastics and how to tackle them, like the pollution caused by the fashion we wear. To give just a couple of examples, in my lab at the University of Plymouth, we tested devices that are intended to capture plastic microfibers from clothing when you wash it in a domestic washing machine. We tested six devices, but unfortunately only two of those achieved a significant reduction in the rate of microfiber release to wastewater. As you probably know, microfibers from textiles are a substantial part of the plastic problem. Just one load of your washing machine can release hundreds of thousands of them into the water. So inventors came up with the idea of microfiber filters, devices that you can put into or attach to your washer to stop the tiny plastic fibers from flowing out. France is the first country to make them mandatory in new washing machines. But there's a lot of room for improvement, because most of the current models don't work efficiently yet. Richard's colleague Imogen Knapper tested some of them and found that many models caught less than a third of all fibers. And even with the best filter, a substantial portion of microfibers escaped down the drain. Now, some would say that actually it's not about uh, domestic washing machines, that the solution there is in sewage treatment plants. And they can be very effective at catching fibres and other microplastics. But let's not forget that most of the world's population don't have the benefit of advanced wastewater treatment or a domestic washing machine. And actually, the research that we'd done in parallel to this showed that over half of all the emissions occurred while you were wearing garments, not while you were washing them. And to wind back to one of the first studies we did, we demonstrated that there could be up to an 80% difference in the rate of fibre release according to the type of garment that you were using. So some garments are shedding fibres 80% less than others. And what that points to is that the design stage is really, really critical in many of our interventions. It's about designing better products rather than trying to catch things further down the pipe, as it were. That would mean changing the fast fashion system and the kinds of materials it uses. But where do we start? The scale, the place where you adopt the intervention is also going to be critically important. Some interventions are appropriate at a local scale or a national scale. But to go back to that 
last example of the fibres. If we're to try to harmonise and improve fibre, yarn, textile design to reduce microfibre shedding, that can't be done at a national or a local scale. It's going to require international action. Production is global, consumption is global, and pollution is global. That's why the United Nations decided to make plastics an issue for a global treaty. But to really be effective, it will be crucial that any action is based on sound information. Which solutions really work? Like in Richard's example of the microfibers, can you prevent them at the source, through different textile design? And if not, where do you try to catch them? We also need to consider unintended consequences, Richard says. Like what happens to the ecosystem if you try to capture plastics? For example, Richard and his team tested a device to catch plastics from shallow waters. Not the microfibers from clothing, but the bigger pieces of trash. It's basically a bucket that you can lower down into a harbor, which sucks in stuff from the surface. And what we found was that it was catching a lot of seaweed. It was catching very, very small quantities of plastic. And unfortunately, when we came to empty the device, what we found was it had also captured uh, fish and shellfish, and the majority of those were now dead. Hundreds of these bins have been installed in ports, marinas and yacht clubs all around the world. We need to be really clear that as we move towards solutions, that we're not resulting in unintended consequences that are actually potentially harmful to the environment. That's why products first need to be tested and tried, Richard says. And we need to understand the context in which they might work. So I think in summary, it's really, really important that we make progress, that we harness the opportunity of the treaty. But we're absolutely going to need to rely on independent, robust scientific evidence to guide us as to which interventions work and which ones might have unintended consequences. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I declare the first session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee to develop an internationally legally binding instrument on plastic pollution. A number of us were down in Uruguay at the first INC, the first negotiating meeting for the Plastics Treaty. Bethany Carney Almroth is a professor of ecotoxicology and environmental sciences at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. One of the things that became really apparent to me there is that it's very, very important that we are in the room, that scientists are there to speak directly with negotiators, to help answer questions, to help deliver the best available knowledge to address the questions that we need to answer in the treaty. We need to make sure that decisions being made in those rooms are made on the best available science. Bethany is an expert on the impacts of chemicals found in plastic products, which she has studied particularly in fish. She has also studied the usage and spread of plastics in society and the environment. Despite all of this expertise, attending the meeting in Uruguay was no easy challenge. It also became apparent that it's difficult for scientists to get there. Academic institutions are not easily accredited through the UNEP organization, and this is a problem. We talk a lot about credibility and transparency. Who are you in the room? Who are you representing? Do you have any conflicts of interests? Last winter in Uruguay, scientists like Bethany had to come through a back door. 
to participate, they had to piggyback with an NGO or another accredited group, so they weren't really visible. UNEP is the United Nations Environmental Program, which hosts these meetings. Bethany and other scientists contacted the organization to change the process. Their hope was to get all researchers accredited directly through their universities. There are actors in the room there who do have conflicts of interests. Here I'm speaking about producers, for example, the oil industry were there. They have apparent, very apparent conflicts of interest in this decision-making process. So if we want to have people in the room that are bringing knowledge and facts without these kinds of conflicts of interests, we need to get academic scientists in the room. But changing the participation structure is impossible for UNEP because decisions at this scale can only be made with approval of UN member states. Bethany and other scientists are now trying to find other ways to help independent scholars to attend more easily. Hi, Anya. Here's Sonia calling, Sonia Dias calling from Brazil. You might remember Sonia from the third episode of my podcast. She told us about the lives of waste pickers around the world, the millions of people who make a living out of collecting and sorting waste, especially in developing countries. Sonia works for Vigo, an organization supporting these informal workers. She's following the negotiations for the Plastics Treaty very closely. It's so important. Uh, from Wigo's uh, perspective, one of the most important things is for informal way speakers to have a seat at the negotiation table. And they are, in fact, participating in the intergovernmental uh, discussions and most of the issues that they have been raising, I guess we could frame them as, as a just transition, as a, as a demand for a just transition into the plastic treaty, which means to have a roadmap in which uh, all the potential impacts of implementing the plastic treaty is taken into consideration in terms of how those policies, uh, the plastic reduction policies, might affect way speakers. How can we design interventions to curb or to uh, reduce plastic pollution in ways that can protect the livelihoods of waste pickers. Working with waste can be very dangerous, and many of the waste pickers live below the poverty line. But this is the job they rely on. So to protect them, the Global Plastics Treaty needs to include their needs, Sonia says. Because some approaches to tackle the pollution might create opportunities for them, while others could destroy their markets. We have laid out what we are calling as the building blocks for a just transition into the plastic treaty. And this includes, you know, the relevance of having an inclusive governance in, in the treaty, uh, the very crucial issue of supporting workers' organizing, uh, 
one of the most important building block is for the treaty to address the needs for workers to build their capacity to perform their roles in curbing plastic pollution. And of course, the one of the most important thing is around social protection and issues on OHS, uh, occupational health and safety, which is so crucial for waste pickers. And most of all, the issue of fair remuneration. Uh, workers, uh, informal workers, are those who are uh, subject to the highest risks and they have the lowest pay. So there are a number of um, demands that the plastic treaty should address in order to uh, build a just transition roadmap. I want to see a more robust inclusion of waste workers and recyclers within the treaty negotiations. Treaty Beste sent me a similar message from the University of Aarhus in Denmark. And within collaborative partnerships that might come out of these talks at various scales of policy and practice. Trudy Bash is an anthropologist studying plastic remediation. This means following policies, technology and innovation that claim to reduce the impacts of plastics. As parts of his research, Trudy Bash has collaborated extensively with waste pickers and plastic recyclers in India. Waste workers are at the front line handling these most hazardous chemical cocktails that accumulate at the end of the plastics value chain. Therefore, they are most intensely exposed every day to the suite of risks that plastic pollution engenders. Therefore, they are truly entitled to a voice at the highest level. Tridibash doesn't see waste workers just as victims. They have valuable knowledge and experience, he says, that could help us understand the challenges and solutions of plastic pollution. Waste workers tend to know why and how different categories of waste can get mixed up, for example, or how toxic chemicals could pass on compounded into new recycled products, or how chemical recycling technologies could simply redistribute toxic contents of plastic waste that really aren't going anywhere. Tridibash calls for a change of perspective. See waste workers as experts, he told me, because they have this first-hand knowledge about what really happens downstream when plastics become waste. Tridibash envisions them as practical advisors to create better materials for reuse and recycling. For that to happen, though, their voices need to be heard. But waste workers are not the only ones demanding a say in the plastics treaty. While their income is based on plastics becoming waste, others profit from the production. So what about them, these much bigger players? Should they get a say? Do we want to give the industry that has created the problem a seat at the table? Martin Wagner is an associate professor of biology at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. The chemical industry, including the plastic industry, has a very long history of preventing or at least watering down policies that interfere with their business. In his many years of research on plastics and chemicals, Martin has seen a lot. And he's closely watching how the industry approaches issues that threaten their bottom line. So 
What we know from like historians is that since the 1950s, the industry has developed a very sophisticated system to defend their products. And that system includes uh, lobbyists, consultants, but also scientists. And that's what's concerning me most. What the uh, um, chemical industry has learned from, indeed, the tobacco industry, is that one method is very, very uh, powerful. And we call that method the manufacture of doubt. So what does that mean? Essentially, really, manufacturing doubt is preventing scientific consensus on one of their products from happening, or at least to create the appearance that there is no scientific consensus on the harms that uh, the industry's products can do. In order to do this, Martin says, the industry produces its own research and creates its own scientific circle. They organize their own scientific workshops on plastic pollution, on microplastics specifically, where they invite um, um, academics as well. They fund independent scientists and they hire so-called independent consultants that keep highlighting the limitations uh, of the science of plastic pollution. So they culture this club of people that um, are, they call it, aligned with their own views and their own agenda. The toolbox of casting doubt also includes criticizing the methods of academic scientists, Martin told me. They do denounce independent science. For instance, uh, they call them out for what they call doing junk science. And that's something that I have quite some personal experience with as well. When it comes to the Plastics Treaty, the big question for Martin is, how do policymakers deal with vested interests in the negotiations? Some people argue that the plastic industry has a role to play in solving the problem. As the polluters, they bear responsibility. They also have privileged knowledge which could help solve the problem, like on the chemicals used in plastics. Their profits can provide resources and money needed. But other people take a very different stance. They say the industry shows no clear intention to really contribute to the solutions, so they should be shut out of the process. And to be honest, I'm seeing both sides here, but I tend to agree with the later position. Given the history um, of the whole sector to meddle with the science to uh, fit their business agendas, given the history of the sector to lobby for regulation that is not in any way restricting their businesses, I think like the plastic industry's role in the negotiations should be as minor as possible. Worried about interests interfering with the negotiations, scientists like Richard, Bethany and Martin have started to organize. They have formed an independent science body called the Scientists' Coalition for an Effective Plastics Treaty. Trisha Farrelly, an anthropologist from Massey University in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is a member of the coalition's steering committee. As an organized collective of international scientists, what we plan to do, what we will do, uh, is to provide member states with um, quick turnaround, rapid, um, critical peer review of scientific claims about safe, toxic-free, just, uh, regenerative and effective responses to the plastic pollution crisis. The coalition started with a declaration signed by over 500 scientists and institutions. 
It highlighted that many of the UN countries were focusing way too much on waste management and recycling. But production, consumption and disposal all had to be equally considered to solve plastic pollution, the scientists argued. To work together, they formed the Scientists' Coalition. Why was it established? It was established because, obviously because of the need identified in the declaration, but also because we'd seen um, UNEP endorsement of reports, you know, which had con contributions from plastic polluter-funded scientists and organisations uh, and others who may or may not have been able to really fully exercise their academic freedom and the roles that they held um, and in their contributions to these reports. So... This is why we set up the Scientist Coalition. The coalition now has over 200 members from more than 40 countries. It is hosted by the International Knowledge Hub Against Plastic Pollution. In order to ensure their independence, all members have to declare any conflicts of interest, including industry and state funding. Indigenous scientists, as well as citizen scientists, are invited to contribute to ensure the broadest expertise possible. The scientists hope that this way, the path to an effective plastics treaty can be supported. If a treaty defines the problem historically, then it would also define the problem of plastics holistically. It would understand that plastics can't just be fixed at the downstream site through better waste management or better recycling, because then it would only be dealing with part of what is so troubling today about plastics and its human rights and human health and planetary health implications. Rebecca Altman is a writer from the United States with a PhD in environmental sociology. She has written for Orion, The Atlantic and The Washington Post and is currently finishing her first book about the history of plastics. It will be personal, because back in the 1960s, Rebecca's father worked at a plastics plant in New Jersey. In her research, Rebecca travels back another century in time, to the beginnings of the industry in the 19th century. Looking back at historical data, we see that plastics have always been global, and even a century before Plastics became disposable goods, single-use plastics, short-term-use containers. Back in the days when they made durable goods, they still posed problems. And those problems stem from extraction, colonial land takings, natural resource depletion, land use mismanagement, toxics exposures to both communities and to workers. It just all goes to say that plastics have always been a bigger issue than waste. And waste is a huge issue, but there are so many other issues that need to be addressed as well relating to human rights and environmental health and environmental justice that goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, there was rubber, a natural latex. It was an amazing material, harvested from the sap of the caoutchouc tree, which the indigenous peoples of South America had long known. But in the temperate climate of the Northern Hemisphere, it wasn't of much use. It either got brittle or sticky. Raincoats were basically melting, so rubber took a while to gain traction in Europe and North America. 
Plastics history begins in the middle decades of the 19th century with hard rubber. Yes, it is sourced from trees, but then it is modified through heat and through chemistry into durable, moldable materials. And these materials are produced on an industrial scale, and their raw materials are sourced on a global scale. You might ask, why do we travel back in time now and talk about rubber? What Rebecca argues here is that the plastic problem starts way earlier than we usually think. My bookshelves are lined with books about the history of rubber extraction and the various troubling human rights violations and labor systems by which this rubber was produced. Rubber factories in the 19th century were incredibly toxic work sites because of naphtha exposures, because of carbon disulfide exposures. These were chemicals used in the production of rubber, and they turned out to be harmful to human health. 150 years ago, before our synthetic throwaway society had even been born, early plastics were already part of an unjust and unhealthy system that spanned the globe. Rubber is just one example. There was also celluloid used in film and photography, viscose and rayon for textiles, and cellophane for packaging. All these were early forms of plastics. They were made from renewable resources, so we'd call them bioplastics today. But their production also caused many problems. Displacement, deforestation, as well as environmental and health issues. And that's why the Plastics Treaty needs to embrace a holistic approach, Rebecca says. One that goes far beyond the waste. Defining the problem of plastic pollution historically actually adds another century's worth of data, of evidence, to the call for a human rights approach, to a call for a focus on the toxicity of the chemicals and intermediates and catalysts required to make plastics. If you'd like to read more about this, Rebecca's article in Science Magazine on the topic is really insightful. It's called The Myth of Historical Bio-Based Plastics. Hi, Anya. It's Leslie Henderson calling from University of Strathclyde in Scotland. We already know a lot about the negative impacts of plastics in the environment, but we now really need an international global treaty which focuses on the social dimensions of plastics and which really foregrounds the way in which plastics are embedded within society and which uses this unique opportunity, I think, to really redefine our relationship with plastics. I share Leslie's hope. The global treaty could be a turning point in the plastic story. For that, it will need to be ambitious, broad and binding. To tackle plastic pollution, we will need more than a voluntary agreement on waste. We need something that really works in practice and considers all aspects of plastic pollution. We know that technical solutions are not likely to be sufficient to solve this problem. Interdisciplinary approaches, which combine the natural, the physical, the social sciences, as well as humanities, can work in combinations to give us a more holistic approach to identify solutions, but also identify potential obstacles uh, to policies. Global regulation will be one step. The next, and even more crucial one, will be for countries to actually implement and enforce these new rules. That needs to be accompanied by very clear communication strategies, Leslie says, 
adapted to the cultural context and the way people live their lives. So, for example, it's really important that we monitor media coverage and that any kind of scare stories which might operate to undermine particular policies and regulations can be challenged. Communications, it's really important, need to be open and transparent and also based on the best available evidence. Even where there is no scientific consensus, it's important that this is also part of the communication strategy and that that is also openly communicated, however difficult that might be. Many different networks of expertise and action are now mobilizing. Waste workers' organizations call for a just transition to protect their members' livelihoods. Academic experts caution to carefully consider potential solutions in order to avoid further damage to people and the planet. The Scientist Coalition could enable and inform faster and fact-based political action without conflicts of interest. In the best case, these different groups will help shape a treaty that works and that is really up to the huge challenge plastic pollution poses. Of course, there are still many open questions. What exactly should the plastics treaty say? What are the antidotes to plastic pollution it should prescribe? More in the next episode. This was Plastosphere, the podcast on plastics, people and the planet. My name is Anja Krieger. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support me via PayPal. Rate and review my podcast on iTunes to help others find the show. If this episode inspired you for your own publications, please credit Plastosphere. This episode featured messages from Richard Thompson, Bethany Carney Almroth, Sonia Diaz, Trudy Besh Day, Martin Wagner, Trisha Farelli, Rebecca Altman, and Leslie Henderson. Thanks to all experts for taking the time to reflect and record their thoughts. Introductory sound and voices, as well as original audio from the first INC in Uruguay, came from the YouTube channels of the United Nations Environmental Program. You heard the voices of Inga Anderson, the executive director of UNEP, Kariako Tobik, the cabinet secretary for the Ministry of Environment and Forestry in Kenya, Amina J. Mohammed, the deputy secretary general of the United Nations, Esben Barth Eide, the UNEA president, and Yoti Matur Philip, executive secretary of the INC. The tango group that played at the INC opening ceremony was the El Sordre National Ballet Company of Uruguay. Huge thanks go to Baldeep Kaur for wise and valuable feedback, Maren von Stockhausen for the cover, Dorian Roy for the theme, and Blue Dot Sessions for the music under a Creative Commons license. All links to the songs are in the transcript, which you can find on plastisphere.earth and in the description of this episode. The Scientists Coalition invites anybody interested to contact them on scientistscoalition.org. That's it. See you soon. <laughs>